I want to ask you a que- actually a couple of questions this morning. Number one, how many of you like to watch football game reruns and want to know the score before you watch it? Is there anybody in here? Be honest, anybody? I, do you really? Okay. I personally do not want to know. It makes me really. It makes it really hard if someone if someone tells me the score to watch any kind of rerun. Can I confess to you? I would never in a million years want to watch the Eagles play the Saints again during regular season. This past that rerun that game they lost forty eight to seven. They were crushed. What would you think if I hopped in my DeLorean and I, knowing what I know now, went back to just a few hours before that game and I were to tell them, hey guys, I have incontrovertible truth that you guys are going to lose. Not only are you going to lose, you're going to get blown out. The Saints are going to smother you. You won't even be able, you'll be able to score one touchdown and they're going to score, what was it, six or seven, six, six touchdowns, 48 to seven. They're going to crush you. How many of them, staring that incontrovertible truth in the face, would want to go out there and destroy the saints and win that game? None of them. Can I ask you a question? Jesus Christ came to this earth to rescue lost souls. Now, in the very end, Colossians 1 says he is going to, and here's what the Greek word translation is, super reconcile. Not just reconcile, super reconcile all things, all the brokenness in this world. He's going to reconcile everything that's broken to him. And though, however, those who have rejected him, he will cast into hell at the end of the age. So here's my question. Between now and then, how do you see this world progressing? Do you see it as you read the scriptures Do you see that the world is supposed to get worse and worse? Or are you seeing that it's going to get better and better? Are you seeing that the rescue plan that Jesus Christ implemented 2,000 years ago is going to work? Or do you see that the gospel, as hard as we are going to try, eventually, I guess, the beast is going to arise and he is just going to crush and destroy us, And as some believe, even have to come back seven years before he really comes back and pull us out, it's going to get that bad. How many of you, if if that's the way history were to play out, would really want to risk your lives in living for Jesus and telling people about Jesus? I'm going to be honest with you. I would fight that. It would be like the eagles knowing, you know what, guys, you're going to get crushed, so go out there and win. All right. Church, there is some good news here. The good news is not just simply that Christ secured salvation for all who trust in him, but you see, God has given us this plan, and we see it in in two dozen plus scripture passages, both Old Testament and New Testament, that there is going to be a global awakening, and it may be gradual, it may be sudden, we don't know when it will be, but it will be this side of the return of Christ. Now, some would argue with this, but church, I'm going to tell you, God has a good plan. He has something in store for his church, and I am praying that it would be our generation. People who, that God used to usher in and be used by God in the first and second great awakening did not believe that the world was just going to get worse and worse and worse. They believed the exact opposite. Now, as, as the Send with Lou Giglio and Francis Chan and many other leaders have been challenging the, the, global, the church globally to 40 days of fasting praying, starting March 1st, going to April 9th, I believe that's the date, isn't it, Juliana? Yes, that's the date. Um, we are being asked and invited into this time of the church's unity and praying for global revival or global awakening, and we're joining them. So however God calls you and speaks personally to your heart how you are to fast, I'm going to encourage you, do this. But let's take this seriously. There are things that we can be doing. We want to investigate that in this series. Now, last week, I 
took a chance kind of because I realized when it comes to the millennial views in our church, people are divided, and I understand that. But the, the question, though, is when we go through these passages that we did last week and go through a few more today, the struggle that I have is that those who hold to a premillennial view take those passages and say they're not for our day. They're not for our age. They're for that age in which Christ reigns on the earth in person. And I struggle with that, not just because I hold a different view, but because these passages, as you really get into them, they truly do speak of these things coming to pass in our day. What does Isaiah 9, 7 say? You, you may have heard Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, for unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. And we share that in our Christmas card greetings. But as it goes on, it says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Think about that, of the increase, not the decrease, the increase, not the steady as she goes, but the increase of Jesus's government, this child that was born, of the increase of his government, of his rule, of his reign, yes, his kingdom, there will be no end. It will only increase, church, no matter how hard the devil tries to pound and destroy his church, he will not succeed. What I did last week, and it was really unfair of me to do this, and I took 15 minutes, and I simply wanted to share some scripture passages and ideas to try and help us close the door on those verses somehow being fulfilled in that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, as some believe. And I'm just going to share one more passage. I'm going to share just a bit of review, and I want us to move on now. And, and it's simply this. In Acts chapter 3... Verse 21, you don't have to go there right now, but it says this. It says, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. Forgive me, I'm going to be very brief on this because I don't want to spend a lot of time. I'm simply trying to, trying to, if I can, close the door on that understanding that these passages we're going through are fulfilled in that thousand years, Okay. I want to ask you a question. What does it mean that God will restore everything? All things. That's the literal translation. All th God is going to restore all things. Not some things, not most things, all things. In me, what needs to be restored is not just simply that I have come to life in Christ, but this flesh, this thing of sin, is completely eradicated in my life. That needs to be restored in me. The brokenness that's in this world, Romans 8 says, one day it will be completely restored at the redemption of the sons of God. This word restore is used in the Greek when they looked into the sky and in the heavenly bodies they would see the planets moving across the night sky or the stars moving across the night sky and would eventually rotate around until it came to the exact same spot this greek word actually means to restore completely so here's my question when do you think god is going to restore everything everything i i, I think in all fairness to the text and what peter is preaching here that time will come when he destroys the, this present earth and heavens, and he will create a new heaven and a new earth. You can read about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, the home of righteousness, it's called. The curse will be lifted. There will be no more death, no more sin, all things restored. By the cross, Jesus will super reconcile everything to the Father. That is the end game. That's when it will happen. And I played a trick on you. I didn't read the whole verse to you. I started off with until. Let me read the phrase that precedes that. It says, he, referring to Jesus, and you can look at the verse if you would like, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore all things. And I am simply suggesting in the premillennial view, when God restores all things, where is Jesus found? According to that model, he's found on earth. This text says, no, 
he must wait in heaven until all things are restored. Let's take a look, a little review here. When we looked at Daniel chapter 2, we discovered that Nebuchadnezzar, a completely pagan, unsaved king, has an amazing dream. And he, he invites his astrologers, not just to give him an interpretation, do you remember? Also to tell him what the dream was. And they said, look, you're asking way too much of us. Who are, this is too hard. You can't ask us to tell you what you dreamed. How are we going to know? And so the king got really ticked. And he said, okay, you're all dead men. I'm going to kill all of you. And he gave the order. And Daniel heard about it. And he prayed. He got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they're all buds. We got to pray. God showed Daniel the dream and its proper interpretation. And this is what happened. It says a rock was cut out of a mountain. And it crushed the statue at its feet. And remember that the feet of the statue we discovered was not the Roman Republic, but the Roman Empire when it was many nations, not just the Roman nation. And that by this, the rock eventually became, it says, a huge mountain that filled the earth. A huge mountain that filled the earth. And, and we read in Daniel, in that same chapter, that this mountain, this huge mountain, is the kingdom of God being established on earth. It will become a huge mountain, church, that will fill the earth. Isaiah gets a vision of this, and he says <laughs> that all nations, in Isaiah 2, all nations will stream to God's holy mountain on which his temple rests. Now, church, that temple has been destroyed, and may I suggest never to be rebuilt. Its job was done. It was a shadow of things to come. The body is found in Christ. Christ is the complete fulfillment of the temple. I assure you, any temple that might be built in the future will certainly by no means be God's temple. It will be a distraction at best. We realize that this holy mountain is a picture of God's kingdom. For Daniel, it filled the whole earth. In Isaiah, it rises above all mountains and all nations stream into it. Even to the point, there is so much peace amongst the nations streaming into this, to this holy mountain of God, we discover that they take their plowshare, they take their swords and beat them into plowshares. Now, growing up, I was told that will happen in the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And I laid a challenge before us, church, that will happen in God's kingdom before Jesus comes back. I want us to, I'm going to read to you Zechariah chapter 9. I kind of ended with this passage, and I'm just going to read a couple of Scripture passages to you. I want you to get a feel for how in the Old Testament they talked about this. And Zechariah, it says right here, it says, He will proclaim peace in the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, that is the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. That's everywhere. But what's the context? When would this be fulfilled? We looked at that last week. The verse just before it is quoted by the gospel writers as being fulfilled on Palm Sunday, in which Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, bringing salvation, righteousness, peace, peace. What does it say here? He will proclaim peace to the nations. The context here is Jesus coming to establish his kingdom of righteousness, peace, salvation, riding a burden of beast that represents peace rather than in the next verse, it talks about the war horses from Jerusalem. The kingdom of God was established in Jerusalem, in Israel, and for the first decade or so, only Jews knew God. 
Only Jews truly had stepped into this new covenant and the kingdom of God began to erupt and the prophecy would be, as Jesus gave before he ascended, even unto the ends of the earth. I want us to investigate this a little bit more because church, this is something that should excite us. This is not bad news. Okay, Jesus is gonna, he's gonna try his best. Jesus' church is gonna do their best, but we're all gonna lose. But at the very end, at the very end, Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna just, just destroy everybody. All the evil people, bad people that are triumphing over the church and the church is being trampled on. Ah, Jesus is gonna come back and destroy them all. Now, I believe Jesus is gonna come back and bring destruction. I don't doubt that. I'm not gonna share everything about end times today. I'm not gonna pull out some prophecy chart and walk you through when this is all gonna be fulfilled. Hal Lindsey said 1988, 40 years after Israel became a nation. I think he misunderstood a passage in Matthew 24. Fig tree will bud and become a nation. And, and, you know, wait a second. Why would, why would that be Israel becoming a nation? People still hang on to that. Last year, they thought for sure he was going to come back because that marked 70 years after Israel became a nation. And I assure you, Jesus did not come back. Jesus has a plan. Church, it is a good plan. It's marching forward. Satan was defeated and rendered powerless at the cross. That's why Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he said, guess what I'm gonna do? He said in his earthly ministry, I'm gonna give you authority over all the power of the enemy. All the power, not some, but all the power. This church has been given to you by his spirit in you. By your spirit in you, you've been birthed into his family, your sons and daughters of the most high king. And you are the crown prince, if you will. You are with ruling with Jesus. And so this plan of God is gonna be marching forward. My prayer, God, let it be in this generation. And if I don't see it, if I'm kind of like Moses looking out to the promised land and I never get to enter in, then so be it. But let my children experience it. I love my children, and my wife and I have done so much to try and pour into them. Then, God, if it's not my generation, let it be the next, but let them see this amazing awakening on this earth. Now, I'm gonna, I said I was going to read a few passages, because in, and I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to say anything because I don't have that much time. But in Psalm 72, this passage from Zechariah, he will rule from sea to sea, is in... <laughs> excuse me, is in Psalm 72. Psalm 72 does not quote Zechariah. I assure you, Zechariah quotes Psalm 72 from Solomon. And it says this, in his days, and it's referring to the son of David, meaning the Messiah. It says, in his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. Now listen to verse eight. He will rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow down before him and his enemies. And I mentioned to you last week, church, you and me, don't kid yourself, you and me were his enemies. And it says his enemies will lick the dust. They will be humbled before him. That's the only way I came to Christ. He had to humble me. He had to break me. He had to destroy this arrogance in my life that was so self-sufficient. And I licked the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. And then in Psalm, Psalm 22, we hear the same bell ringing. And it says in Psalm 22, a, a messianic psalm, it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. So this is not a picture of heaven. This is a picture of now. While salvation is being offered, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations, the huge mountain will fill the whole earth, church. Now turn with me. I was just going to read those. I said I wasn't going to comment, and I, and I did. But okay, Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah. Isaiah really does have a lot to say about this kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God is generally called in his book, 
the holy mountain of God. You can look at Hebrews 12. This is we have not come before Mount Sinai, a mountain that can be touched, where there is fire and smoke and trembling. But we have come to Mount Zion, not the physical mountain, Mount Zion, the kingdom of God. We have come to the new Jerusalem. <clears throat> There's other passages, but he says this. And in, in chapter 11, verse 9, he says, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord even as the waters cover the seas. Now, if you were to imagine the seas, he may mean sea basins. So as you were to look at and see the sea basins, bordered by the continental shelves, it's all filled with water. If this, if the, as the waters cover the sea basins, on average, that's two miles deep. Church, that is full. That is full. In this way, this earth, the world, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And as Isaiah uses this word knowledge, it just just doesn't mean, yeah, they know some facts about it. But there is an encounter, a relational encounter with Yahweh, with God himself. The knowledge of Yahweh will fill the earth. Not just that the gospel will be preached, but that the gospel will change and people will end, in a, end up in a relationship with the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, even as the waters cover the seas. Church, that is full. That is full. Let me explain to you the significance of this. For. Do you see that first word there? I think it's in all your translations. For. That's like because. Do you know what that word because means? That tells me, hey, there's a cause and effect relationship right here. That is that by because the earth is going to be so full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas, whatever is mentioned before is going to be the result. So the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, a relational knowledge of the Lord. And what will it do? It will bring about what we read just prior to it. And I'm not going to read the whole passage just prior to it. Do you know what that passage is? Many of you have heard it. It says this, and I'm only going to quote a little. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard, excuse me, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Verse 8, the the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy where? On all God's holy mountain. If this is to be fulfilled sometime in the future, and this holy mountain is the literal Mount Zion, my question is, how far is this peace that we obviously see here where uh, carnivorous animals are not devouring prey, their prey? There's peace. If this is literal, it only happens in this little place called Mount Zion, if we're look, thinking of a literal mountain. Just that one little, it's, it's, it's less than a dot on your globe that you have in your homeschool room, that you have in your house, that you would see on a map. It's not even a dot. Is that really the triumphant message that Isaiah is trying to tell us on this? You can't even see it on the map, but it's there. There's, that's where God's peace is. Church, this this is Daniel's huge mountain that fills the earth. That's where the peace will be. I do believe this is symbolic. The first verse, the first, excuse me, the verse right before verse five sets us up for that. Righteousness will be his his what? His belt. Do you think Jesus is going to be actually wearing this belt and it's going to have righteousness on? No. And faithfulness, the sash around his waist, the sash that's around the chest area here. Faithfulness. Is, is, is it just going to be a garment that he's going to wear? No. This is a picture of Jesus 
And pictures speak so much to us because this is what will surround him. This is what will comprise and hold together this kingdom. It is going to be faithfulness, and it is going to be righteousness. So he already gives us the clue. I'm going to speak symbolically here, metaphorically. And so he begins to talk to us about this. This is not going to happen sometime after Jesus comes back only. This isn't going to happen on this little tiny Mount Zion and nowhere else. This is going to happen as far as this huge mountain extends, the whole earth, this holy mountain of God. Now, if you're struggling with that because you have heard this passage applied over and over and over to that thousand years, let me just suggest to you this. If you were to read the very next phrase, in that day, in that day, do you see that in verse 10? In that day. In that day means whatever's about to, whatever he's about to say will be fulfilled in the day that I'm telling you about, in the day in which the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, this is what's going to happen. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's just a logic. In that day, this is what it says. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. Isn't that awesome, church? The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Can I tell you, do you know when this is fulfilled? Because Paul tells us when verse 10 is fulfilled. He tells us. If an apostle gives us a clue about when a scripture passage is to be uh, fulfilled, man, I'm going to believe it. It's quoted in Romans 15, 12. It's quoted in the context of not just the Jews coming to Christ, but he lists numerous passages, and he says, guys, listen to this. Gentiles, oh yeah, Gentiles, they're going to come, they're going to pour into the church. The Gentiles are going to be called, they're going to rally to him. This is a, this is, Paul says this is going to be happening in our day. So if verse 10 is fulfilled in this messianic age, in this day, the church age, before he comes back, the previous verses are as well. In that day, Gentiles will rally to Jesus. May I also say that in that day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. Do you, do you see this? The earth, in this time in which the gospel is offered to all the nations, and they will rally to him in that day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Let's now move into the New Testament. And as we do that, I want us to start observing some application for our lives today, okay? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. So right now, we've just looked at several Old Testament. There's many other Old Testament passages. Uh, we don't have time to look at all of those by any means, but Matthew 13, what does Jesus have to say about this? I mean, he's the one who came to inaugurate this kingdom, does he have anything to say about it? I believe he does. And we're just going to look at, at two parables. It says here in chapter 13, verse 24, it says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven. That's, that's the same as the kingdom of God, so you know. This is what we're talking about, right? I'm suggesting this kingdom of God will fill the whole earth. This is what he says. The kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Let me pause for a moment. From verses 37 to 43, Jesus has gone into his house. His disciples have asked him, whoa, Jesus, that was, a, that was some pretty heavy teaching there. We're like lost. What? What do you mean by the, this, the parable, this story of the weeds? We don't get it. And Jesus gives his understanding, his interpretation. And he tells him that the good seed is not the gospel as it was in his prior parable of the four soils. Now it represents the sons of the kingdom. That's you and me, sons and daughters of the kingdom. And that the field is analogous to the world, the world. 
the entire world. It says, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now, the Greek word here for weeds is zizania. Zizania, if you were to translate that, because it's, it's a certain type of weed, that the name we give to this weed is called darnel. That's our English word. The Greek word is zizania. The English word is darnel. Darnel, many of you know this, but I'm going to just re repeat if you haven't, you might learn something here, but wheat and darnel, when they start growing up, they look identical to one another. They look just the same until the head opens. When the head opens, you immediately can tell the difference. There is some similarity. There's a lot of fluff in, in the stalks and the seeds coming off of that as it, the head opens. But when you look closely at them, you can tell, whoa, these are really different. This is beginning to happen. And the helper says to his master, I thought you sowed only good seed. Why is there so much darnel? And the master says, because the enemy came and sowed this darnel. You know what? For a time, they look just like the sons of my kingdom. I'm, I'm stepping out of the parable now. Jesus is saying, you know what? They look just like the sons of my kingdom. But guess what? They're not. When the head opens, oh, now we know the bad fruit, of course. But you know what? It is he, the point of the parable is it is not our responsibility to sort the difference. Don't do that. You're going to destroy some of the good wheat. Don't do that. Let the harvesting angels take care of that. Here's, here's what I want to ask you. Though this is not the main point, we'll see the main point is later, but this is not, this is not the main point, but I do want to ask you, when the farmer sows his field, and, and I would suggest any field, how does he sow it? I want you to just imagine this in your mind. Does he reach into his bag of seed and take it and just throw it over here and then put his hand in the bag, walk over to a, another corner of the field and throw it over there, walk over to another corner and throw some more so that there's pockets of seed here and there? Is that what he does? No. What does he do? He sows the good seed from side to side, side to side, corner to corner, everywhere. Those are the sons of the kingdom. The Darnell, unfortunately, it grows up with them. In the 1040 window, I am assuring you there will be sons of the kingdom. Not a seed here and a seed there from end to end. East to west, north to south. I'm not saying that all Muslims will come to Christ. I don't think that's his point here. And the next parable we're going to look at is not the point. I don't know what percentage or how many are going to come to Christ. I just know that this kingdom of God is so powerful, church. The enemy, the enemy has read scripture. He knows what's going to happen and he is super ticked, and he will do everything he can to keep you, this generation, from stepping into that prophetic plan of God. I, I want to be equipped. I want to be able to, God, what can I do in my generation to see that fulfilled in which the kingdom of God extends from sea to sea? I want to be a part of that. How can I do that? This is what we need to talk about. How can you, how can I, how can we be a part of this historical moment marching forward in which the kingdom of God will extend and the rule of Jesus will extend from sea to sea everywhere and fill the earth? I'm going to look at this last passage and I want us to see something here and we're going to move into some applications, something, some things for us to seriously allow the spirit of God to help us consider. I'm going to skip a parable. It's the parable of the mustard seed. I'm going to skip to the kingdom, uh, the, the parable of the yeast. In verse 33, it's just one verse, just one verse. I think sometimes when Jesus speaks a parable in one verse, it's like, okay, yeah, got it. Let's move on. Wait, wait, wait. Let, let's consider this. He says, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. 
that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour. The literal Greek there is three sadas of flour. That's a large amount. Large amount. I understand 22 liters thereabouts. It's a lot. She mixed it into this large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And again, the literal Greek here is until the whole was leavened. The purpose of yeast is what? It's to leaven. I have eaten unleavened bread. I really do not prefer it. God bless the Jews in the old covenant when they had to eat unleavened bread. I guess I could do it for just a meal, but for the Passover meal, there was a purpose, there was symbolism in that that needed to be there to give us a picture of what Christ would fill. I understand that, but I'm just so glad that I'm not under that covenant and I have to eat unleavened bread for a whole week, in fact, not just for that meal, but a whole week. I don't like unleavened bread. You know, sometimes we have tried to make bread with yeast and it, it didn't work and it didn't rise and I don't like that. Have you ever made bread and you mix just a little bit of yeast? You, or a little, uh, you, you, mix it, you put yeast in it and you mix it up only a little bit and only a little bit rises here and there, little, little pock bubbles here and there, right? I mean, I've not ever done that. And the reason why we don't do that is because we mix it all in, not so that the yeast does not leaven this little bit over here and this little bit over here and this little bit over here. What does the yeast do as you're doing this, as you're kneading the bread, as you're mixing it up? It leavens everything, the whole batch of dough. Jesus doesn't tell us what he means by this, but can you imagine what he means? What is the yeast? The yeast is not just the gospel of the kingdom that can be either accepted or rejected. The yeast is the kingdom. Okay? It is the kingdom of God. This yeast affects the entire batch of dough, not just pockets here and there. Of course, we've got to exclude the 1040 window because they're all Muslim or Buddhist or animist or what have you, and they're just too hard to reach. You know what? It might be too hard for us, but it is absolutely not too hard for God. And God in our day is giving Muslims prophetic dreams, showing them Jesus, and they are coming to Jesus. God is healing them. God is doing miracles in their midst. This is only going to accelerate, church, because God has a heart for the 1040 window more than you do, more than I do. He wants to save them as well and even more than we do. So guess what God's going to do? The yeast will leaven that lump of dough as well. I can assure you, Even though Matthew 24 says the end will not come until the gospel is preached in all the nations, because when the gospel is preached in all the nations, that doesn't mean they accept it. That is not what he's saying here. Because this is not just the gospel of the kingdom, though that's the tool, the vehicle, if you will, through the spreading of the kingdom. What he is getting at here is this yeast impacts the dough. The kingdom of God will impact the entire world. So do you see that this isn't just proclaiming the gospel? And right now, billions are rejecting it, but they are affected, they are impacted, they are changed. I'm not saying everyone, but the entire lump or portion of dough. In the first parable, the field represented the world. In the second parable, the field or the garden represented the world. What do you think this, these three sodas of flour represent? Church, the world, the world, the entire world will be impacted by the kingdom of God. They're not just going to hear the gospel They will be impacted by the gospel. They will be revolutionized. They will be revived. The spirit of God and the gospel will change people's lives. Nations will be impacted by the gospel, by the kingdom of God, by the establishment of his kingdom in their midst. 
I realize that Iran is a Muslim nation, but it will not be forever. It will not be forever. It's not just this verse, it's so many others, but this is clear. The kingdom of God is going to impact, change the world. And so when the send is saying, guys, let's pray for global revival or global awakening, They're doing this because that is what Scripture teaches will happen. We are praying, therefore, according to the will of God. If his plan is this amazing rescue plan that church is going to work, and it's going to extend, the rule of Jesus is going to extend from sea to sea, If we pray for that, are we not praying according to his will? And if we pray according to his will, what does scripture absolutely uh, promise us? It's going to happen. So here is my question, though. Why doesn't it happen? And I'm not going to suppose that I have an answer for you this morning. I have some thoughts, but I want us to consider them if we would. I think in our day, there is a tendency to come up with a step-by-step plan. And, and, and I'm a planner. I love planning. I, I mean, church, I love planning. I love sitting down and figuring out how something's going to work. And you step one, step two, step three, steps four, step five, and we're guaranteed for step six. That's what's going to happen. Isn't that cool? And it doesn't always work that way, though. It, we put together this formula. You don't have to turn there. I've actually preached on this some months ago. Actually, when was it? When I preached on Galatians and the place of the law. But this is what Paul told the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 5. This is very relevant for what we're talking about. He says in Galatians 3, 5, he says, Does God give you his spirit? And work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Faith. Is it the law that's produced these things or is it faith in receiving God's grace? Which is it? It's a rhetorical question. They already know the answer. (laughs) He just rebuked them. Who has bewitched you? Are you so deceived? Oi, they... Lord, please help them get this. And and there is this tendency for us to work for God's grace. Now get this. They receive his spirit. It's the present tense, not the past tense. He's not saying, hey, do you guys remember when you received the spirit? Do you guys remember when I visited you and God did miracles through me? Nope, it's present tense. He is not there. He is saying God is doing miracles in your midst and there's no apostle there. God is doing this, not a man. God is working miracles among you. God is giving you his spirit. And how is this happening? Because you're following some formula? Nope. Because you believe. You believe. You are utterly desperate for God to move in your midst. Let me insert something here now. God wants to bring revival. He wants to bring his spirit and work miracles throughout this earth and that so, that the lev- so that the yeast leavens the whole earth, if you will. How is he going to do that? Because we're going to put together a formula that if we pray four hours a day, God's going to do this. Don't, get, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for four hours a day. If God leads you to do that, church, do that. But that's an exercise of faith. But God is not going to bring revival because his church has figured out some formula to do it. He's not going to do that. He doesn't respond to man's formulas. There was a man who went around, and I was all for what he was teaching. Pray an hour a day. Pray an hour a day. Come on, church. Pray an hour a day. But this is what he said. God said to me, and I'm sorry I don't believe this. God said to me that if Americans pray one hour a day, he's going to bring revival. That is man's formula. God never works this way. God doesn't look on the outward. Oh, you know what, Christian? If you could just step on this treadmill of performance and you're good enough, if you just keep doing it, 
I know you feel like a failure, but I don't care how you feel. Just step on that treadmill of performance. performance. And if you can do this, I'm going to honor that. You will win. You will earn my grace. How ironic is that? No. God looks at the heart. That is what he is constantly looking at. We look at the outward. You remember when Samuel was, tr- was going to ordain a king, anoint a king? Or you looked at his oldest brother, oh, awesome. Yes, he's the guy. And God said, well, excuse me? Samuel, you're looking on the outward side. Yeah, he's big, he's strong, but guess what? So was Saul. And where is he today? I, I'm improvising here a bit. Samuel. I look at the heart. You see that guy right there? He's the runt of the litter, the last kid born. As a matter of fact, he is out in the sheep field doing what none of the others want to do. Why? Because he's the youngest and he's probably the smallest. He's the guy that I've called. Because I don't call the strong, I call the weak to lead. I call the, those who are not so smart to impact this world. I call the Gideons of this generation who, do, who can only rely on the simple 300 that I've given them. Why? Because I want to receive all the glory. And so as, as, as a church, it just amazes me. And forgive me, church, I have done this in which we come up with some formula. If we just do this, 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 and this, God, this is what God's going to do. Here's one thing that God asks. I want your heart so broken before me. I want you to realize you absolutely cannot. And if you don't get that, I'll put your back up against the wall until you cry uncle or father. I I will do whatever it takes to break you down so that you are like Gideon and you're saying, God, are you serious? I have three. I started off with 32,000 to fight an army of 130,000, and you did what? You took all of them away but 300, and I'm supposed to win this battle? Thanks for nothing. He didn't say that. But you can imagine God was bringing him to this place of rawness, of faith. There is no formula in this at all. At the very end, God said, okay, here's what I want you to do. This is going to freak you out, but here's what I want you to do. I want all three of you to have torches, put a little clay jar over them, trumpets, and that's how I want you to go into battle. Can you imagine Gideon as a strategist saying, wait, what? Are you serious? That is not going to work. He doesn't argue with God. Strategy's out the window. Okay, God, I don't get this, but I am going to obey you. That was the heart of faith. And he wavered. He asked for signs. God is not opposed to us asking him for signs. It's a confession. God, I'm weak right now. Now, if God doesn't give you a sign, he doesn't give you a sign. That's totally up to him. God gave Gideon some signs. But the heart of this was faith. Faith. Can you believe God for the absolute impossible? because that's where he wants you to be. Again, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to plans and strategies. Paul strategized. He had a plan. He went to the synagogues first, proclaimed the gospel. When people received Christ, here's guys decades old in studying the Old Testament. It was like instant elders. It was a good plan. When he was going on a second missionary journey, it, it, it seems that he wanted to go to Ephesus into the heart of Asia as, not Asia that we know Asia, but Asia as a province in present-day Turkey. I want to go to Asia. And it said the Spirit of God forbade him. Sorry, Paul. Good strategizing, wrong time. Go north. So he goes north. He's going to go into Bithynia and, and Pontus. The Spirit of God said, uh-uh. Nope. And he blocked him. And he went over to Troas. And he says, okay, God, here I am. I'm trying so hard to be led by you. And all my plans, they're like nothing. And he has a vision of a man of Macedonia calling him, come to us. And all the while, step by step, left, right, he comes to this place. God, I don't even think I know what I'm doing. You have got to show me. All formulas and all plans out the window right now. And then God spoke. 
God wants to deal with our heart. He is not looking for formulas, though can I say this, that if Jesus' church, and I'm not contradicting myself when I say this, but if Jesus' church is so bored during prayer so they do not pray, please, let's not expect revival. It's not because we're not praying. That's the fruit from the tree, if you will. It's because something is wrong with the tree. When after 15 minutes of prayer, we're saying, whew, man, I'm exhausted. Oh, Lord. And you want me to pray for an hour? Can you imagine the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? You know what, Jesus? My knees are starting to really ache. I'm done. Uh, that was what, five minutes? Okay, we're, we're just going to do this. We're going to pray. And before you know it, 30 seconds later, they're gone. They're out. They're asleep. And Jesus comes back. My, I see your hand being raised. <laughs> God bless you during that movie last night, bro. You tried. You tried. Mike fell asleep. Gone. I mean, the church in many ways is asleep. Keith Green, way back in the early 80s, he he, he said it this way, they're asleep in the light. Asleep in the light. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to sing that one. I'm not going to sing that one. I'll do you a favor. I think perhaps church, and, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on these in the weeks to come. Why don't we pray more? Why don't we share the gospel more? Church, can I be honest with you? I think sometimes we have forgotten the preciousness of God's grace. Do you realize that when God forgave you of your sins, he didn't just say, mm, I, I remember that. That was a really bad one. I think I'm going to forgive that one. But that one just the other day, mm, no, I don't think so. He forgave all of them, church. All of those sins that you are ashamed of, they are all under the blood. All of them. Do you remember the slavery that you were in? You were held captive. Romans 6 says you were a slave to sin. You were dead in your sins and in your transgressions. Church, you were dead. You were gone. Dead as a doornail. You could not do anything to please God. You were his enemy. I I didn't feel like his enemy. I, I grew up in church. I went to church every Sunday, except when I played sick. Every Sunday, guys. And I was so lost. I was so without Jesus. Have we forgotten this? Have you forgotten what it's like and how Christ has rescued you? Has our heart become hardened? Do you remember what it was like trying to swim in that ocean of sin and self-help and you trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? of you trying to make life right, you can go to any bookstore, the top 10, most of them are self-help books. Here's how you can be a better you. This desperately wicked heart, a better? What, I'm going to be a better sinner? Yeah, I can guarantee you that. Without Jesus, that's exactly what we'll we'll become. We'll know how to do sin even better. I'll learn how to be more self-reliant and not need God. Oh, yes. Just give me one of those top 10 best-selling books. The answer is only in Jesus. He is the only one. God's grace pulled me up out of the miry clay and set me on Jesus, the solid rock. Jesus is the answer. I don't care what the world has to offer. Jesus is it. He is the one that changed my heart. He is the one who's going to change your neighbor's heart. You might be gifted, you might be super smart, you might have apologetics under the belt, that's not going to win them. The grace of God. The grace of God. I'm not saying don't evangelize, I'm not saying don't answer their questions, do that. But in the end, it's going to be God's grace. I mean, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that it is God's grace? We're being invited to partner with him in this kingdom to see it extend throughout the earth. 
That is his invitation. I remember as a young guy thinking, oh, I'm going to be a pastor and I'm going to change this world. And it became all about me. And God sat on his throne and had a really good laugh. Yeah, right, Mike. I need to take you through this school of mine. And it was not seminary. And he said, Mike, life is hard. And if you think you got the answers in and of yourself, you are so wrong. If you think you can do this, I need to show you that you can't and that you must rely on me. And God had to change my heart. I thought he had humbled me a lot. I was pretty proud of my humility. And Jesus had to show me, yeah, I think that's the problem. And God has humbled me and humbled me and humbled me. And he has humbled you too. Yeah, he's humbled you too, church. Come on. And he's bringing you to that place just like Gideon. Really? With 300? Really? With this limited gifting? With my limited knowledge? Let me tell you what I can't do. And Jesus is saying, awesome, perfect. You're the man. You're the woman I want to use. Can you yield your heart to me? Because that's all I need. Can you do that? Because if you can do that and set aside your nice formulas, the law, the prescribed way, and can you trust me and believe my word? And I am going to so use you. I think sometimes, though, we have forgotten his the fact that we were broken, crushed ones beyond repair that only he could mend. I think sometimes we get distracted by the stuff of this world and we pursue it and we, we are so, I'm not against promotions, but are you pursuing a promotion to the extent that you are no longer salt and light in your workplace? Then you have missed it. Have you so focused on your own inadequacies, and we all have them? Have we become so discouraged? Well, you know what? I've tried that, and I just can't do it. I can't. I try so hard, Mike. And I said, that is amazing that you have tried. And maybe God needed you to do that to show you just how much you can't, but he can. So here's my point. Here's where I'm going with all of this. And I'd like you to dim the lights if you could. Because God is looking for a people who know that they can't do it and are so completely dependent upon him that they are not caught up in the things of the world. They are not pursuing all of those things. I'm all for financial blessing, church. I just don't pursue it. If you want to compare my pursuit of Jesus with my pursuit of wealth, I pray that my pursuit of Jesus is a bright shining light and the pursuit of wealth is so small, it's going to fade. I think God needs to do something in our heart. So here's what I'm going to do. Can you stand with me? I did tell you I wasn't going to sing that Keith Green song, but I am going to sing you a song. And I don't do this often, and you thank me for it, but I do want to sing this song for you. And some of you know this song, and if you know it, I want you to join with me. We're not going to have any instruments. This is going to totally be us, but it's Keith Green's song, My Eyes Are Dry. And he sang this song because he saw a church asleep in the light. He saw a church whose heart had not been broken and who was so self-reliant, and whose faith was old. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, and my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. So what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your love. 
And join me with, join with me. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, and my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. So what can be done with an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew. In the wine of your love. Jesus, would you do that for us? Would you soften this hardened heart? So many different reasons why it's gotten hard. Would you soften it? Would you create in it something new this morning? Would you revive this heart? Would you take this old faith and would you invigorate it with this amazing deposit of faith from our Savior? Would you stir in our hearts, God, this longing to see your kingdom come here on earth just like it is in heaven? Would you do this in our hearts, God? Would you raise up Gideons throughout this earth today in this generation? And Lord, I want to be one of those. And I think a lot of brothers and sisters here this morning, we, we want to be one of those guys. So, Father, with this limited gifting, limited abilities, may we be like that yeast that by your grace impacts the entire world. Would you do this, God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have an amazing, amazing week.